We're going to be reading in chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to its tenants and then went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. All right, find your way to Matthew chapter 21 in your copy of Scripture. And we're going to be looking at the parable of the tenants. We um, are looking at parables this summer. We're going to look at the parable of tenants this week, another parable next week. And then we are going to begin working our way through the book of Romans. The book of Romans has 16 chapters. So if you were to take a little bit of time each day between now and when we start uh, to read a chapter a day, you could get almost all the way through the book of the Roman, the book of Romans between now and when we start in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and it's worth reading. Uh, so you could do that. One thing to make note of on our prayer slides, we have Bear Creek Church. It's one of the churches we uh, are praying for on a routine basis. In particular, we should make note, Pastor Dale Metter has been diagnosed with ALS. And you would be uh, really doing a great thing for him in that church if you could just jot down in your Bible or on what, your little prayer sheet to be praying for Dale and his family in that church as he wanders through uh, the unknowns of, um, of that disease. Well, the knowns of that disease and how frightening that is. So uh, if you could commit maybe to praying for Bear Creek and Pastor Dale, uh, that would be, I know, appreciated by uh, him. Parable of the Tenants. Uh, rags to riches stories. We like rags to riches stories. One of the things that's an often a plot line in rags to riches stories, movies, etc., is uh, someone is poor. They they do good in their their job or their uh, their business, and they become wealthy, and then they change. That's usually one of the plot lines you might often see. Is somebody goes rags to riches, and then all of a sudden they're a different person, and then usually at some point in the in the story they will say, you know, your your success really changed you. You know, you're, just, you're a different person back uh, before. So the question then becomes, does, uh, does success change someone? And, and a researcher or a group of researchers decided to try and figure that out. And so they studied people who had become uh, wealthy and, and been successful. And they realized that in general, you know, in general, as they we're generalizing here, in general, actually uh, becoming wealthy doesn't change you. 
it merely provides you the resources to do that which you always wanted to do and just couldn't afford. And so what, what general, now we're generalizing here. What happens is somebody now, they say, boy, you really changed. No, it's just before I was too broke to do these terrible things. And now I can, I can really afford it. So I want to draw from that a principle that I just sort of want us to think about as we look at this parable. And, I, and I'm going to put it to you in the form of a question. If you could afford to do anything you want, and there would never be any significant consequences, what would your life look like? What would it look like if my heart or your heart could be unleashed to do whatever it could possibly want and there really wouldn't be any immediate uh, significant repercussions? And what the researchers discovered is somebody who has access to resource and is uninhibited, it allows us to have a real clear and uh, look into what they're like as a person on the inside. So here's my suggestion to us this morning. God has everything he could ever want. God is fully uh, substantiated, fully exists in and of his own being. There is nothing he needs, and there's nobody above him to tell him what ought to be or what ought not to be. And so I would suggest this is true. When God acts, it is always completely and totally in line with his nature. God always acts and behaves perfectly in tune with what he's like, what his heart is like, and what he seeks. So we can learn something about God by what he, by what he does. And here's what I'm going to suggest we learn about God in this parable. It's this. God is a generous king. God is a generous king. And there's two aspects of that I want to look at. There's a lot going on in the parable. We're going to just narrow it down to two things. God is a generous king. Firstly, this because everything is provided in his kingdom. God is a generous king because everything is provided in his kingdom. Look at the parable. A master planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants. Who built the, who built the vineyard? The master did. Who planted the, the vines? The master did. Who put the wine press in? The master did. Who put the guard tower in? The master did. Who owns the property? The master does. The master has provided 100% of the vineyard and he invites tenants in. Of that vineyard, how much do the tenants own? Zero percent. The master is 100% the designer, creator, owner of that vineyard. It has been put in place only and completely because the master wanted to. Felt like having a vineyard. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I've got a lot of scriptures I'm going to be reading this morning, and most of the time they're going to be up on the screen. But uh, Al said, I was going kind of fast this morning, and I said, challenge accepted. You thought that was fast. Here we go. Hold on. So appreciate Al's work on the slides, but uh, you may want to have your copy of the scripture open too. Here's what Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 says. I'm going to read to verse 17. The Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and it became four rivers. 
name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is, is good. Bedellium and Onyx stone are there as well. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And, of course, the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you will surely die. So God makes himself the universe. God uh, creates within that universe a garden where he places humankind, and humankind is given his garden to work. So everything is provided by God. What, what existed before God created? Nothing. So everything that is, God created. Why did God create? Because he felt like it, and he gets to do whatever he wants, and so creation is a pure expression of God's nature. He wanted to create that which was good, and he wanted to create us to put into that was good, which was good. It tells us something of his nature. So God gives us his garden in order to work. So it is within God's nature, it is what is, he is like to provide what, what is needed. That's what God is like, and he provides generously. God is a generous king, and everything is provided generously by God for us to live uh, and to work. God is near, God is creator, and we are in his creation, and we are his creation, but God is still God. So the, the way this is designed to work is God creates, he puts us into his creation to do his work. He says, have dominion and work the garden, and in working his creation, we have relationship with God. We delight in God, he delights in us, and we enjoy his creation. And this is God's generosity as the king. He creates the vineyard, puts us in it, and says, go to town. Have a good time. Who remains God? God does. That part never changes. So God's nature is to provide generally, generously, I should say, but he only does so as God. So his role as sovereign creator over what he has created never changes. So he gives generously, but his position as creator, that is, that is fixed. Okay, let's go back uh, to the parable in Matthew chapter 21. So the, the master creates this vineyard, and then what he does is he then rents it out to tenants. And this was very normal in those days. In fact, we see that even nowadays. Uh, it was a little bit different situation. What the owner would do is give it to tenants. Tenants would work it. They would prune it. They would harvest it. And then once harvest would occur, a portion of the harvest would go to the owner. Now, the vast majority of the harvest would be kept by the tenants. And I'm not exactly sure uh, how much the tenants might retain. The only other place in the Bible we see an arrangement like this is Joseph in Egypt. Joseph through the famine, purchases all the land of Egypt for the Pharaoh. And so then they give the land back to the people of Egypt to work. And if you remember the story, what happens is they plow and work their land. They keep 80% and 20% is given to Pharaoh. It's the same kind of situation here. We have tenants working the land and a portion is given back to the landowner and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10. 20% goes back to the owner. 
So the vast majority of the harvest is kept by the tenants to do with as they see fit, which of course in this case they're going to make wine. And so what happens is they, at harvest time, the owner sends his servants back to the vineyard to get the proceeds of the vineyard. Uh, maybe the grapes, more likely he's being paid in wine after it's been, uh, it's been made. And so they go there and the tenants though, this is where the story gets weird. Instead of giving the 20%, they say, who's this guy? We don't know who this guy is. We're not giving him the 20%. And so they beat some of the servants. They stone some of the servants. They kill some of the servants. And so more servants are sent. And more servants are sent. Some are stoned. Some are killed. Some are stoned and killed. Uh, some are beaten. Some are flogged. Some are made fun of. There's just a wide variety of things that occur uh, to these servants. And finally, the owner says, you know what? Maybe they'll listen to my son. So he sends his son. And the people working the, the vineyard realize maybe if the son is dead, the ownership of the vineyard will transfer to us. And this is where we realize what they really want. What they want is the vineyard and for the owner to just take a hike. That's what we want. We want just the vineyard. So, of course, as you discover in, in hearing the parable told, the son comes, they kill the son, casting him out of the vineyard. The tenants don't have to do anything other than tend his vine and give the portion to him, but instead what they want is the rejection of the owner so they can keep the vineyard. Now, the owner in the parable sends envoy after envoy. Repeatedly, he sends people to collect his... His, uh, the amount that he is owed. How many do you think he was obligated to send? Just one. And then what he should have done is hired an army to evict those tenants immediately. And so we discover a little something about this owner. He is not immediately wanting to destroy them by giving them an opportunity uh, to respond. How is this connected to Genesis? I'm glad you asked. I mean, that's what a fantastic question. What a smart group. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. If you want to turn back there or look up at the screen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We're back in the garden. The serpent is talking to Eve, and he said this to the woman. Did God actually say you shall not eat, any, eat of any tree in the garden? What's the answer? No, God did not say that. God did not say you shall not eat of any tree. What did he actually say? You can eat of any tree. You can eat of all the trees except for the one tree. That's what he actually said. So the way the serpent is phrasing the question is trying to get Eve to see God as a cheapskate. Did God really say that you could eat from all the trees? So let's just really focus on the one thing he said you can't have. There's that one tree. And what we really need to understand, the serpent might be suggesting to Eve, God really is a cheapskate. Your suspicions about him really are. Aren't they proving to be true? Look down at verse 4. The serpent continues. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's the situation we find ourselves in. God has given a garden. He has called humankind to work his garden for humankind's greatest delight, humankind's greatest favor, God's greatest glory. And in this moment of decision, people have to decide do we want this situation or do we want to exclude the master of the vineyard and have the vineyard for our own? And what the serpent is deceiving them is saying is, listen, 
since you have all of God's stuff and you don't really need anything otherwise, wouldn't it be great if God could be cut out of this relationship? This whole situation, you have everything you need in the Garden of Eden. What in the world is God doing besides just being a cheapskate? So, of course, all of humanity hangs in the balance and they decide that's a good idea. And they eat the fruit and that arrogance and that sin problem which says, I don't really need God is now a fundamental element of the human DNA. Is do I really need God? If I have enough, what need is there of an absentee landlord? And that is now a struggle of every single human who struggles at the end of the day. If we could have it our way, we would live without God if he would just leave us alone. Why have God? And it's because uh, humankind has failed to see that the treasure is not God's stuff. The treasure is, in fact, God himself. So this is what happens over in the vineyard. Those landlords or those tenants, they see a a vineyard and they realize if we set this upright, we don't need the master. And they fail to understand how good they have it because they have such a generous master. And this is not just merely a problem in first century Israel. This is the problem. The human heart is hunting and searching for ways to figure out How can life be lived with God up on the shelf? And maybe just every now and then, I got to pull him down when things get really tough. Here's the irony. God didn't need to create. Here's what we know about God from the scripture. God has always existed. God will always exist. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed. God in and of himself is all he needs. God was not lonely. God was not broke. God was not bored. God was not hungry. He said, man, I am starving. Could somebody make a fruit tree? None of these things were true. God created merely because he wanted to, and it was the way in which he could display who he is for his greatest glory. He did not need us. God did not need creation. So God didn't need you and I, but God wanted us. His heart yearned for relationship with those made in his image on whom he would bestow the honor of working and having dominion over his creation. Here's the thing. God doesn't need us, but wants us. We, on the other hand, need God and don't want him. We need God, but if somehow our brains can work it out where we can have everything we need in his garden, maybe there's a way we can be rid of this annoying God. This is the way the human heart operates, and to deny it is dangerous. We reject God to delight and glory in ourselves in the vineyard he made, where what God wants to do is accept us and receive us as his people to delight in us. So the irony is, as we've said, God didn't need to create, and he did, and he wants us. We, on the other hand, need him desperately, but don't really want him. If we could live life without him, we might be satisfied with that. God's a generous king and everything is provided in his kingdom. All right, God's kingdom is a little bit unique in this. Most of the time, if you have a kingdom, that means you're a king and therefore you have people. So say if somebody came to you and said, hey, you know, I'm a king. You say, oh, where's your people? They would say, oh, well, I don't really have people. And you say, well, guess what? You're not a king. 
Here's the thing about God. As creator of the universe, he is king by his very nature. He doesn't require people to say, you know, we'll follow you, God, so therefore you're king. He is king. The question is whether or not we will recognize he is king and be on board with being uh, his people. So his kingdom doesn't require people. One philosopher put it this way, and maybe you've already thought of it this way before, but it's worth reminding ourselves. God's existence does not require your belief. Like somebody said, well, I, I don't believe in God. Okay, congratulations, but that has absolutely nothing to do with his existence. His existence does not occur because of your belief. The question is whether or not you will recognize the reality of his existence. And the same is true of his kingdom. He is king whether or not we recognize him as king or not. And he is a generous king, so he doesn't require a people to be a king. However, God seeks a people. This is what's great about God. He is a generous king because a people are sought for his uh, kingdom. Okay, let's look again at Genesis. You want to? Doesn't matter. I asked to make it seem like I'm interested. Anyway, Genesis chapter 1, quite a bit to read here. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. God is generous king. Remember, first of all, everything is provided in his kingdom. Secondly, we're going to see here, a people are sought for his kingdom. God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God has created. God is king of the universe. He is sovereign over all the universe. He creates humans in his own image and determines by his own purposes, another way of saying that, because he wanted to, to grant to us some of his authority in his creation. He says, I am sovereign over all that is. I'm going to take some of my authority, give it to you. And the way he says that in Genesis is for us to have dominion over his creation. He also says in there to be fruitful in his creation. In the immediate context of Genesis, he's of course talking about having children and multiplying across the earth. But in the broader context of the story of scripture, God is seeking a people who is fruitful for him and his purposes in his kingdom. So God's nature is to do what he wants to do, and he determines, just because he wanted to, to do what he wanted to do through you and me. He said, I'm going to create the universe. I'm going to put people made in my image to work my creation for our greatest benefit, for his greatest glory. That's the economy of creation. God makes a vineyard. He supplies everything in it. He puts us to work in it. And the concept here is we have a relationship with God as we express his name in creation. 
And, and that's his purpose. That's what he wants to do. And so God calls the people uh, to himself. Okay, a couple of more passages of Scripture I want to turn to. And by a couple of more, I mean the entire Old Testament. Are you ready? We're just going to start reading it. Now, let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And it's, it would be, I mean, it seems pretty obvious once I read it, that clearly Jesus had in mind Isaiah chapter 5 when he was telling us this parable of the tenants, of the vineyard. And so here this uh, passage out of Isaiah chapter 5, he's talking about the people of Israel, but you're going to see the language of the tenants as I read it, and, it's, uh, and we're going to draw some conclusions from that. Here's what Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 says. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Of course, wild grapes were not useful for making wine. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds and they won't rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting And he looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So what Isaiah is saying here is God has called to himself a people, Israel. And he called to himself a people that is illustrated here as a vineyard. And the question he asks himself at the end of the age there is, what more could have been done for this vineyard to be fruitful? What more could have been done by God? Nothing. He did everything that needed to be done for that vineyard to be fruitful. However, it wasn't fruitful. The story of Israel's history is a history that is the human story. It's a story of rebellion. And what precisely was their uh, issue with their rebellion? Once they got into the good land and they had the milk and they had the honey, what did they say? We don't need God. So it's the same story all over again. It's Garden of Eden, just now it's in the Promised Land. The people of Israel warned even in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, be careful when you get into the land, if you've got big houses and lots of food, that you don't abandon God. That's precisely what happened, is once they had all of God's good things, they said, we don't need God anymore. And God is saying to them, what more could I have done to make you fruitful? And the answer is, there is nothing else that could have been done. And so God says, since you have abandoned me, I will tear down your protection and you will be ravaged. Look how the psalmist mourns this in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 80, beginning in verse 6. Psalm 80, beginning in verse 6, this is Asaph writing as they're responding to this judgment of God and what he had done to Israel as a response to their rebellion against him. The psalm says this in Psalm 80 verse 6. I'm going to read through 13. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
Verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the cedars were covered by its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. So the people of Israel rebelled against God because they didn't want God. They just wanted his stuff and God has allowed them to be ravaged. And now the psalmist is saying, why God have you done this? Is that a fair question? Is it against the rules when things are going bad to pray to God, why God? No, it's not against the rules. It's the rule. When things are going terrible, there's a fantastic prayer. Why God is this happening? Thankfully, in this particular context, we know exactly why this is happening. And it's happening because they have rebelled against God because they wanted to keep God's stuff and they didn't want God any longer. One more passage I want to read. I think I'm actually being serious. This might be the last one. Amos chapter 4. Who's read Amos? Amos is fantastic. If you've never read Amos, go home tonight and read Amos. I don't know, six or seven chapters. Not terribly long. Probably read it in a half hour. Don't read it to your kids until you read it first so you can do the edit live. But you're going to want to know where those passages are. They're not safe for work, not safe for kids, uh, unless you want to have a conversation with kids or you aren't ready for it. Okay, but we're going to read some, um, not those parts, Amos chapter 4, beginning in 6. The question is, why, God, did you tear down the protection of your vineyard? Why, God, are you bringing such judgment on the people of Israel when they rebelled against you? People of Israel have rejected God to keep his stuff. And they're asking, God, why have you done this? And Amos tells us why. Let's read. Verse 6 of Amos 4. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Cleanness of teeth is just a, a metaphor for no food to eat. He wasn't giving them dental hygiene giving them clean teeth because you got nothing to eat. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there was still three months to harvest. It would rain on one city and not on another city. One field would have rain, another one would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and they still wouldn't be satisfied. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew and your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees and, and the locusts devoured. Yet, what is it? You did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 10, I sent among you pestilence after the banner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go into your nose. And yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Keep going. I overthrew some of you. And when God, like when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you still did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Listen, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So here's what God has done. Israel has pursued all of God's things and said, God, therefore we don't need you. And so what God does with surgical precision 
is seek to remove that which has captivated his people and drawn them from their life-giving source, which is God himself. So God here is not being capricious. He is not being grumpy. He didn't skip his coffee or not get his nap. He's not being annoyed or smacking people upside the head. He is like a precise surgeon seeking to remove exactly that which is drawing his people away from their life, which is God himself. So he has removed the stuff they wanted that they might seek him. And what's his response each time he does that? But you're not seeking me. Because here's what they did. They went to the oncologist. They had a cancerous tumor. The, t- the oncologist went in, performed the best surgery ever performed, removed exactly that which was causing their illness. When they were in recovery, they asked him, is there any way I could get my tumor back? Does that make any sense? Would anybody do that? That's exactly what's happening to them. God has removed that which has pulled their eyes off of him, and now they want so badly that which has poisoned their soul. And so what God says is this, you know what? Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Over in the vineyard, the master had given the tenants a run of the operation, and then he had gone away for a time. And we see this throughout the parables, that delay. And what that delay does, uh, in the, the bridegroom does it in the parable of the ten virgins, and we see it here with the, the parable of the tenants. What that does, it allows us to see the heart of those who are separated by, from God by that delay. And the heart is revealed of the tenants in the vineyard. They don't really want God. And God says, want me or not, guess what? Prepare to meet your God. I wasn't asking whether or not I could come back to the vineyard. I was trying to make a way for my return to be awesome for you and me both. Instead, it's going to be awesome for me because God's will is always done. But they aren't prepared to meet their God. God still seeks his people. And what we discover over in Matthew 21, maybe turn there again because we see some words that Jesus uh, shares in verse 43 of Matthew 21. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from his people and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone, the cornerstone will be broken in pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus is saying this way. God still seeks his people, and he seeks his people through his son, the cornerstone. Are the people of Israel rejected? Absolutely not. The people of Israel can still be in the kingdom of God, but now all who seek to be in the kingdom of God do so through the son. Jesus came and made the way for us to enter into the kingdom of God by putting our faith in him. He died on the cross to pay for our rebellion, our rebellion in particular, where we say, I don't want God, but I'll take his stuff. And Jesus dies on the cross and takes our punishment on himself so that we can come to God and say, you know what, God? You can keep the stuff. I want relationship with you. And God says, the way we do that is through the son. To reject Christ is to accept judgment. Did did I say that right? To reject Christ is to accept judgment. To accept Christ by faith is to escape judgment. And Amos said it best, prepare to meet your God. God fulfills his covenant promises to the people of Israel in Christ. And so therefore, when we are in Christ, all of the covenant obligations and promises have been fulfilled. We get to enjoy finally again relationship with God that is whole. God is a generous king. Everything is provided in his kingdom. And secondly, a people are sought 
for his kingdom. Three ideas here before we take communion together just to sort of uh, think about. Life can be hard as it turns out. Anybody, is it just me? Life can be hard. Life can kind of grind out of us any notion that God is good. Life gets kind of crazy and lame and horrible and nasty. Sometimes it's great too, but sometimes life gets really hard. And what can happen is, is the toughness of living in a fallen world can grind out of us any concept that God is a generous king. We say things like this. If God were good, this would never be happening. But in fact, what we ought to do by faith is say, I need to discover what God is like, not by my short-sighted perception of reality, but instead by what the word tells me about him. And everything God is doing in my life and in your life is good and is a means to help us prepare for that day when we will meet him. The question we have to ask ourselves is by faith, are we going to believe God's word and what it says about him? Or are we going to believe our perception on what life ought to be like? Okay, second thing you might want to think about. God is really good at making stuff. Have you noticed? The world is actually, actually a lot of fun. There's like some really good food to eat. I don't know if you know this. Uh, really anything with cheese. It's pretty good. I you know, I have a little bit of German in my background, so basically salt on anything makes it happy. I like salty food. You know, what can I do? Uh, maybe I have high blood pressure. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Um, there's lots of fun things to do. We live in Southern Oregon. Californians move here, and we tell them, oh, it is so awful here. You're going to want to go back <laughs> because we don't want to drive with you on roads. We want you to go somewhere else. <laughs> now, if you're from California and you're visiting, I just, you know, you're welcome. You're, you, of course, are welcome to stay. I'm talking about the, those who aren't here this morning. So God is really good. There are things to enjoy. There are homes to enjoy. We have families. We have great food. We have jobs we enjoy. There are places we can go that we enjoy to see the ocean and we enjoy walking through the woods. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot to enjoy. In fact, it would be terribly silly to say that what God has made certainly, oh, that would never distract me from God. That would be silly. It would be silly for us to pretend like this creation he has made isn't Good. The question is, am I willing to admit that what he has made can and will distract me from the best thing, which is him? Am I willing to admit that my treasure here can tend to pull me away from the best treasure of all time, which is God himself? And what we learn from the vineyard and what we learn from Israel's story is this. That which is in my life, which is pulling me from the treasure of God, I am well served to be rid of it. Whatever it is, if there is a thing, a stuff, a whatever in my life that is keeping me from the best thing, the, the, the smartest and wisest thing I can do is say, Lord, I need that out of my life. I need to be rid of it that my treasure might be in you and you alone. Finally, this, prepare to meet your God. We have to reconcile with God before our death or before his return, and now is the time. We are closer than we've ever been. And there is no time to play around. If you have not been reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, it is a matter of recognizing that you have sought his things, your own purposes, excluded God, and turned to him for forgiveness through faith. God is a generous king. Everything is provided and people are sought for his kingdom.